Well, it's good to be with you once again this afternoon for worship. We give thanks for this time to praise our Lord together. Before we open God's word, let us come to him in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that we may again come to worship, to praise your name, to glorify you for your salvation. And Father, as we open your word this afternoon to Jonah 3, and we see your marvelous work in the hearts of the Ninevites, Father, we do pray earnestly that you would cause such a great work even in this nation, even in this city. Father, your arm of salvation has not been shortened. You have not changed, and your power to save has never changed. And so we pray, Father, that you would work a great change in the hearts of those around us, Father, that we may be a gospel light and a gospel witness to them. Proclaiming Jesus Christ to them. Declaring the Savior, our Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts now to your word. That we may receive it and live for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name alone. Amen. Well, as we turn to Jonah 3, let me just say that uh, I won't preach another sermon or anything, but let me just say, don't be discouraged at the hostilities of the world. Jesus Christ warned us. Paul told us. We see in Acts and throughout all of Scripture that there is great hostility. You are in the kingdom of God. They are in the kingdom of the world, which is ruled by the evil prince, Satan. You can expect hostility. Expect more of it. But we're also told in the New Testament by Paul in Philippians that it's even a blessing and a gift from the Lord when we suffer for Christ. So I would encourage you, suffer for Christ. Don't be a stench to the world because of our own arrogant attitudes or hearts. Bring the gospel, and if you suffer, rejoice that you suffer with Christ. It might be difficult, we're not used to it, but rejoice that you may suffer with Jesus Christ because you are his child. Well, let's turn to Jonah 3. This morning we consider Jonah 2. And uh, we'll, Lord willing, get through the whole passage here. So beginning at verse 1, Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and 
call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, for the greatest, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat, sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's also then turn over to Luke 11. Luke 11, verse 29. This is Luke's account of Jesus speaking of the sign of Jonah. Verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with, this, with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, this morning we saw the prophet of the Lord, the rebellious prophet of the Lord, being brought down to the very bottom of the sea in Jonah 2. But it was more than just the depths of the sea that Jonah was cast down into. In fact, it was death in Jonah's eyes, 
The language we saw that Jonah used to describe his distress was the language of death. The bars had been closed behind him. We saw the waves had covered him. He felt as though he was done for. And it was because of Jonah's sin that he was there and he acknowledges it. He knows that he deserved this. And yet at the same time, we saw that the Lord did not abandon or forget his rebellious servant. In Jonah's prayer, we saw that Jonah acknowledges that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that God's preserving hand was in this whole event. But we also were reminded that that passage there, chapter 2, was not just about Jonah. It wasn't just about this smelly prophet in the stomach of some, some monstrous fish. Rather, we saw that that passage pointed us to Jesus Christ. The one who went down into the depths to death because of your and my sins. And yet Christ Jesus burst open those bonds and he led out a host of captives. And now you and I are able to look at our resurrection hope and say, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? It has been taken away in Christ Jesus. And now Jonah, standing there on dry land, has once again seen, we could say, afresh the mercies of God. He felt his need of his Savior. And he rested in his hope, in the hope of God's promises to him. We saw that his prayer had come into the temple of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ. And now Jonah, having been delivered, being reminded of the grace of God in his own life, is now equipped and ready, you could say, with resurrection life, having been raised from the dead to fulfill the task that the Lord has assigned to him. And so today we want to look at that Jonah's task or Jonah's response to God's salvation. And then we'll see Nineveh's response to God's message as well. And finally, we'll see God's response to the Ninevites. So let's begin here in verse 1 of chapter 3, where it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Notice here it says the word of the Lord. This should remind us of chapter 1, shouldn't it? It's the words that the Lord uses to appoint his prophets. Jonah, in a sense, had abdicated his role as a prophet in chapter 1 by his actions fleeing to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, he declared he had no desire to be the Lord's servant. He would rather be out of fellowship with God than obey 
his Lord. And yet the Lord was not finished with him. God did not just cast him off. God has now graciously delivered him, and now he, in a sense, reinstates him into his role as a prophet. The text makes this abundantly clear by using the exact same language as chapter 1. And here we just need to pause for a very brief moment and consider the loving kindness and the long-suffering and patience of the Lord with his wayward children. God says to Moses in Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is our God. And if each one of us was to consider our life even in this past week, how many of us could raise our hand and say, I deserve to be here today? We've all sinned and rebelled, and yet the Lord's patience is with us in bringing you and I here into his presence to worship him again. But Jonah is not off the hook for his duty here. He doesn't just get to, you know, go home and sit in his lazy boy now. The Lord continues and says, arise, go. It's the same command again, isn't it? Call out against it or against Nineveh. The message, I tell you, that's an addition to the first command. The task wasn't any easier now. There was no difference in the command whatsoever. The change was in the man, not the job. In chapter 1, we had a prophet who was heartless, who seemed to be graceless, who was rebellious, who was a runaway, who was stubborn, perhaps proud, now, after chapter 2, we have an obedient, repentant, humbled, restored, dependent prophet. And so we read in verse 3 that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. In chapter 1, we saw that there was prompt disobedience. If you are here for chapter 1, verse 3, we saw that there the text is especially abrupt. Jonah, Jonah's disobedience was very intentional. We could almost say it was prompt disobedience. But here it's quite the opposite. It seems that there's prompt obedience. The evidence of a Christian life is obedience to our Heavenly Father. 1 John 2, 4 and 5 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. And yes, we do sin, absolutely. Yes, we need an advocate. The Apostle John 
shows us that in 1 John 2, 1 as well. But at the same time, the Christian life is a life of obedience. Obedience because we have been delivered, we have been redeemed, and now we desire to serve the Lord. You know, when somebody is converted and becomes a Christian, they don't just get to wake up the next day and say, well, that's great. I'm free from the law. I don't have to worry about it anymore. I can do as I please. There seems to be a trend in much of Christianity to say, well, the moral law was fulfilled in Christ. It doesn't apply to me anymore. I don't have to worry about Lord's Day worship. I do as I please. That's not the case. God's will for your life and for my life isn't simply done away with. Jesus even makes that clear in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And nor as Christians or children of God, no matter how long we've lived as Christians, can we simply do away with our tasks when we've repented from sin. Perhaps we've not been a faithful parent, faithful spouse, faithful employee, whatever it may be. We can't just wake up one day and say, hey, you know, I know that I was wrong. God, forgive me. And then carry on and say it doesn't matter. No, when we are redeemed like Jonah, the law of God becomes precious as we saw it this morning. It does not become a burden. It becomes a delight to obey. Jonah had looked to the temple, Jesus Christ. And looking to that temple now, he is ready to obey. John again says in his letter, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The evidence of a Christian life is obedience to our Heavenly Father. And so there goes Jonah, obeying the Lord. He goes off to Nineveh. And the text says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' breadth in journey. The idea here of this verse is that this city was also important to God. God cared about the city, even though it was a wicked city. It's important to him. We'd see in chapter 4 that God cares for the souls of the people there, even though they are so wicked. But this is also one of the passages where critics say, well, the book of Jonah must just be a fable, just a parable, because... The archaeological evidence tells us that Nineveh was only about 12,000 kilometers in circumference. And so the critics say, well, then the testimony of Scripture can't possibly be true if it says it's a three days journey. However, my contention is that we take Scripture at face value, for it's the Word of God. 
But not only that, it also gives us a glimpse into what happened to Nineveh eventually. If you were to turn over to Isaiah 10, 19, you would read there from Isaiah that the destruction of Nineveh was so complete that a child could write down the number of trees that were left. There would be nothing left. And so Scripture here tells us that this was a vast city. It was huge. And Jonah begins going into this city just one day's journey. Now when he gets into the city, he doesn't settle down and just get to know everybody. No, he doesn't just become a nice neighbor. He doesn't go out for a drink with the guys. No, he gets straight to work. He gets straight to his message that he's called to proclaim. You know, too often, we as Christians try to think evangelism can be done without words. We'd just be a nice neighbor, just wave at the neighbor across the fence, maybe bring them some cookies at Christmas time. And I'm not discrediting kind acts. We must be kind. We must show our Christian faith by our works, absolutely. But we need to open our mouths and speak the gospel. You know, Jesus did many kind works, many great works. The apostles did many great works. But those works testified to the truth of the words. Our kind acts need to testify to the truth of the gospel light living in our hearts that we proclaim to our neighbors. I'm not saying you need to necessarily go over to your neighbors at Christmas time if they just moved in and hand them a plate of cookies and tell them they're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. But too often we use the excuse of kind works to get out of using our words. We need to open our mouths and talk about Jesus. But what does Jonah do? Does he go there and lecture them on politics? Does he tell them, oh, God loves you all? Or does he tell them they should just be a little bit nicer? Stop being so nasty and cruel to each other and to others. No, Jonah goes out and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Kind of reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't it? It's a message of wrath and judgment that Jonah declares. I wonder if you've ever thought this is the very basics of the gospel message. You know, we don't proclaim a gospel of Narnia, do we? Where Aslan went and paid the witch. Jesus didn't come and pay Satan. No, rather we're told in Scripture that it's God's wrath that we have to do with. Hebrews 4.13 tells us all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Revelation tells us that the day is coming 
when men and women and all who are not of the kingdom of God will cry out to the mountains because of the wrath of the Lamb. Psalm 7 tells us that if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. God has bent and readied his bow in wrath. You know, if we fail to tell people that they need to be saved from the wrath of a righteous God, we've missed the gospel. This is absolutely foundational to the gospel truth. Think about why did Jesus come? Oh, and yeah, I know you could say John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. True. Absolutely true. But Jesus didn't come just to be a nice person, just to give us a good example. No, Jesus came to bear the righteous wrath of God because of the guilt of his people. Paul says, He who knew no sin became sin. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus Christ came to bear our trespasses. He came to offer himself as a substitute. Galatians says that Jesus Christ became a curse. He was hung on the tree and became a curse for you and I. We had the curse resting upon us because of our breaking of the law, and that curse was taken from us and placed on Christ, and his righteousness was taken and placed on us. This is, this is no fluffy message. This is no snowflake gospel. We need to be saved from the righteous wrath of God that burns against sinners. It's not social justice or politics that we preach. I wonder, do you ever get to telling people this? You need Jesus because the day of judgment's coming. Your soul is in peril. In a sense, you can say they're standing at the gates of hell and they are thrown open and they are ready to step into eternity before the throne of God. And then point them to Jesus and say there's a substitute. But not just do you tell people this, do you believe it? Is this what you believe in your heart? That you come to the Lord knowing that you deserved his wrath, but seeing the substitute who took it for you. Do you place your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ? The, the Ninevites had no misgivings of what Jonah was saying. They knew exactly what he was saying. And they responded to his message with humility there's four things we want to see in the response, and I'm not giving you the four steps to become a Christian or anything like that. I acknowledge that behind all of this, the Spirit is working in their hearts, absolutely. 
But we want to simply walk through this now and see how the Ninevites responded because of the work of God in their hearts. And so we'll see that they believed God. They had sorrow for their sins. They turned from their sins and they believed or had faith, I should say, in God's sign. Verse 5a says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. It could also be translated that they believed in God. This is the very first step. There's not a single person who will truly repent unless they believe what God says. If you don't think you're a sinner or you don't think you've sinned, you won't think you need to repent, will you? You know, this was Israel's problem. Again, Isaiah says here in Isaiah 30, where he describes for us Israel and their attitude towards God's message to them. Rather than wanting to hear judgment, rather than listening to the prophets, they say to the prophets, speak to us smooth words, prophesy illusions. They wanted their ears to be tickled. We don't want to believe that we are so bad, do we? The psalmist in Psalm 110, 11 says of the wicked, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see. You know, by nature, we do not want to believe what the Bible says about the corruption of our hearts. But the Ninevites believed it. You know, you'll never begin to overcome sin, never begin to have repentance in your life until you believe what God's word says about your sin and the consequences of it. But secondly, they humbled themselves. They didn't just believe it. Notice the response of the people here. This is only one day of preaching, and they're just beside themselves in repentance, humbling themselves and fasting. It would have been a, a remarkable thing to behold. I wonder what was going through Jonah's mind as he saw this. I mean, Israel wouldn't even think about doing this. He's only been here for a day. Notice further the response of the king. One commentator writing about the king and the nobles of Nineveh said this, that when this sovereign, and remember the Ninevite kings thought they were divine, when this sovereign came face to face with the sovereign God, he abandoned his throne for an ash heap. Now, could you imagine a preacher walking into Ottawa? He gets into the city of Ottawa and starts preaching. And the whole city floods out. They're all humbled and see the wickedness of their hearts. And they're in repentance and in tears, humbling themselves before the Lord. And the message comes to Parliament Hill, and out comes our Prime Minister. He takes off his suit jacket, 
puts on sackcloth and climbs on an ash heap. Could you imagine that? You know, I'm sure even as in my mind, the first time I thought of that, perhaps in your mind, you think, yeah, right. Not a chance. But shame on us for thinking not a chance. Is the Lord's hand of salvation at all shortened? Not a chance. He is still as mighty to save today as he was in the days of Jonah. I wonder, do we pray for it and long for it? Or do we allow our doubts to overwhelm us? Notice the completeness of this humbling. It's the greatest to the least, the cattle to the beast. I think if we saw it, we would think they were maybe a bit excessive, don't you think? Even making their beasts fast and wear sackcloth. But I wonder how often we're not like the Jews of Jonah and Jesus' day stubbornly unrepentant. So often we barely shed a tear for our sin. We can hardly squeak out a prayer for it. We excuse it. And don't think it's that big of a deal unless we perhaps get caught. And yet the Lord thinks it's a big deal. In Jonah 2, 12, he says, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. True, we don't go around to be a show to men, but Jesus even said, blessed are those who mourn. We need to consider our ways, not simply brush off our sin as if it's nothing. Joel continues, rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you want to see the comfort of the Lord? Yes, we always need to be looking to Jesus, absolutely. But we also need to consider the gravity of our sin, the horror of sinning against a holy God. When we see the depths of our sin, we'll see far more clearly the wonders of our salvation in Christ. You know, Jesus in Luke told a parable to Simon the Pharisee as he was sitting in his house. Well, he asked him a question. He said, Simon, a creditor, had two debtors. One owed him a vast amount. The other owed him only a tiny debt. And that man forgave them all, and he said to Simon, which one do you suppose would love him more? Simon said, well, I suppose the one who owed him a greater debt. Jesus said, you're right. The point isn't that we must figure out if we have the greater debt than the next. The point is that we look into our hearts and see how great a debtor we are and see the love of our Father for us to forgive us that debt. 
But thirdly, sorrow is empty if there's never any change. The king says, let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hand. Remember how cruel and wicked Nineveh was. There is no true repentance apart from a changed life. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7 says, Will you steal and murder and commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? Then come stand before me in this house and say, We are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. You know, not a single one of us here would believe somebody if they said they were sorry and never changed. We would think it's absolutely absurd. No, true repentance includes change. I'm not advocating perfectionism. I'm not saying we become perfect. Not saying we completely stop sinning. But at the same time, the evidence of a Christian life, even as James tells us, is a changed life. And that change can only come as we look to Jesus Christ. As we behold the Savior. And this is exactly where the Ninevites went. We see next that the king says, let them call out mightily to God. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There was hope. They're not just going to sit around on their ash heap. He might ask, well, how could there be hope? I mean, all we know is that Jonah preached wrath and condemnation. This is where Luke 11 comes in, isn't it? Jesus said that Jonah was a sign to Nineveh. What do you do with a sign? If you're driving down the road and there's a sign that says there's an S-bend in the road, do you keep looking at the sign as you drive by it? No, you look ahead to where the sign points you. They saw Jonah and they, had, they saw him raised out of that fish and through Jonah they saw Jesus Christ proclaimed as salvation. They saw the resurrection life preached in Jonah. And just the same, you and I cannot stay on the ash heap. We need to look to Jesus Christ, the guarantee of our salvation. He, he's not the sign, he's the substance. He's not the type, he's the reality. The Ninevites, they saw Christ through Jonah. And consider what a miserable life it would be for you and I, for any to forever stay on the ash heap, mourning and grieving, never looking to Jesus Christ, always just looking into the depths of our own sin. And yes, in life we'll end up there again and again because of our sinful nature. But we can't stay there. 
we repent of our sin, we see that we've sinned against God, and we flee to Christ. Think of Paul contemplating his own sinfulness, the wretchedness of his heart. He cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But he doesn't stay there. No, he immediately says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's to Christ that Paul flees. And that's where all repentance must drive us, to Jesus Christ. And as we look to Christ, the change in our life comes. Only as we look to Christ. Well, the Ninevites, having heard Jonah's message, they repented of their sin and looked at Jonah as the sign of salvation. Now receive God's response to their repentance. Verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The Ninevites, they received salvation. But even as we think about that, there's a couple things that we need to address here in this verse. First of all, we need to ask the question, what did God see? Many say, oh, well, God was gaining some new knowledge. Secondly, did God change because he relented from the evil that he had said he would do? I mean, did God know that the Ninevites would change? And, or did he just hope that they would change, perhaps? And now that they've changed, is God going to change his actions based on their change? We see this kind of language in Acts where, or in, in Exodus where God says that he saw the affliction of the Israelites. Or in Sodom and Gomorrah where he sends the two angels to see if the report about Sodom and Gomorrah is true. Or when he says that he regretted making Saul king. So does God change when he sees things happen? Another way we could ask it is, can your actions change God? What you do, your repentance or your sin, does it change the decrees of God? And you may think, and I may have thought at one time too, that, well, of course not. I mean, we just take that for granted. The children's catechism even says, does God change? And the answer is no. He is always the same. But this is a vital issue. Your salvation hangs on the question of whether or not God can change. Not only that, the unchangeable character of God is under attack today, even in the Christian world. Or circles, perhaps we should say. There are theologians who are arguing that your actions can change God. 
So first we ask, did God see or did God gain some new knowledge? Does God learn things as things happen on earth? Perhaps he didn't know they would be uh, repent. Perhaps he was shocked at their repentance. Well, the only way we can answer this is from Scripture and seeing what the Scriptures testify. Solomon in his temple prayer in 1 Kings 8 says, For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. God knows every single thought. Even every inclination of our very heart is laid naked before God, as Hebrews 4 13 tells us, Isaiah 46 says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things yet are not yet done. God knows everything that has happened that will happen. Acts 15 the Jerusalem Council says that God knows from of old those who are His. And we haven't even come to Psalm 139, where it tells us that our, each one of our days has been written in His book. This change of Nineveh was no new news to God. He knew it was coming. If God could change, or if God could learn new things, I should say, he would be no God. But that leads us to the second question, this question of repentance, God's repentance or God's relenting of evil. We read of things like this in Genesis 6.6 6, where God regretted making man or as I already said in Kings where God regretted making Saul king. We've got to think back to verse 4 here. Did God make an idle threat? Well, again, we need to establish from Scripture that God does not change. Psalm 102 says, You are the same, and your years have no end. And James says that there is no shadow of change in God. God's eternal decrees have never Changed. Think of Hebrews 6, where the author is proving that God is unchanging. He says that when God wanted to prove the unchanging nature of his purposes to Abraham, he swore by himself. I mean, think about it. Abraham's faith would have been futile if God could change, his faith would have been useless. Or what good would it be for Jesus to say that not a single one of his sheep could be grasped from his hands if he could change? It would be a useless promise. It would be like a flower in the field that's trampling underfoot. It's just gone. We could maybe even say it would be like a politician's promise. We know what those are like. They don't last Probably not even a day after election day. It would be absolutely useless to believe God. Do you see the importance of this doctrine? The Lord says to Israel, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
If God could change, your hope of salvation is absolutely worthless. Again, as I said this morning with the resurrection, you may as well just go home if God could change. Perhaps today he likes you, maybe tomorrow he won't. Rather, the answer, though, to Jonah 3.10 is not that God changed. Rather, God used the means of Jonah's preaching and the declaration of judgment to come in order to change the hearts of the Ninevites. The change wasn't in God. The change was in Nineveh. And because we cannot understand in fullness the ways of God, God has spoken to us in a way that we can understand. That's the answer here to this passage. God's decree had been set from all eternity that through the preaching of, of, of Jonah, Nineveh would repent and receive his forgiveness. That's the comfort for you and I. That we who have believed in Jesus Christ have assurance. There is no other assurance that we can have other than the fact that God will not change his promises. He has sworn by himself. He has sealed it with the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, as Christ said in the upper room, this is the blood of the covenant given for you. He swore it with an oath as he promised it to Abraham. How can you go home tonight and lay your head on the pillow and have any confidence that if you die in your sleep, you will wake with the Lord. It's because our God never changes. His covenant faithfulness and His steadfast love to you, to me, are always the same. Even when you and I end up on that ash heap, because of our sin, his covenant faithfulness is the same, and he points us back to his son. Is this the God that you worship? Do you lay down at night and rest in the assurance of his unchanging love? Do you wake up in the morning and rejoice? Because no matter what happens in that day, if the world seems to fall apart against you, if they come down upon you and persecute you, can you rejoice because your God never changed? He is the same yesterday, today, and for all eternity. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Your life, your soul, is held preciously in His fatherly hand. And no one, not the whole world, not the devil, nothing can rend that from his hands. This is our God, the one who redeems us 
and preserves us for an eternity of fellowship. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your abiding love. Father, so often we are tumultuous. So often our lives are like the waves of the sea. We often turn from you we're often like Jonah. You're often unfaithful. And yet we rejoice and give you thanks that you are unchanging. That your love for us abides from day to day, moment to moment. that you never abandon nor forsake us, that even tonight we can go home, put our heads on the pillow with the assurance that you are with us. That if we do not wake up again in this world, that we will be with you in glory. Or that if we wake up in the morning to a day of great trials and troubles, you are still unchanging. We thank you that even in a book like Jonah, we can be reminded of this. We can be reminded of Nineveh, who looked to your unchanging promises, seeing them through the sign of Jonah. And we can look to Jesus Christ, the substance of that sign, and rejoice knowing that he is risen and reigning, that he loves us and continually intercedes for us. We praise you for these truths. We pray, O oh Father, that through your Spirit you would lift up our hearts to rejoice in them, That even our affections, our emotions would be moved to thanksgiving through the knowledge that we have of your character. That we would rejoice with such great joy, giving you praise for your declaration of your character. So, Father, we pray, work these things in us by your Spirit, that we may always rejoice in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.